just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today is slightly different though as my friend Ilia Lindsay is interviewing me. In this episode we chat about my diagnosis of relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis, the effects that that had on my life and career, what happened when suddenly my neurologist found a lesion on my brain that looked like PML, and the inspiration behind starting That So Chronic. Not only is Ilia an incredible psychologist and friend of mine, but she also just became an incredible mum. So throughout the episode, you will hear my niece Kiva in the background adding her thoughts to the conversation. We're starting her young. (laughs) This episode has been highly requested in the review section and over on Instagram at That's So Chronic. I really hope it lives up to your expectations and you enjoy this episode. Welcome to That's So Chronic. Let's do this. (laughs) The tables have turned slightly today Mm -hmm. as I am not the one asking the questions and I feel a little bit nervous about this. (laughs) But I'm joined by my friend Ilia. Welcome. Hello everyone. Thank you. For the OG fans that have been following That's So Chronic on Instagram for a while, they will have met you right at the beginning when this podcast was just an idea I met up with you for coffee because you are a psychologist. I am. That is right. Actually, yes, that was right when mm. that so chronic baby was being born yeah. for you. What was that? The end of last was COVID a thing? Yes, it was. It was, it was just, just after starting lockdown. To yeah, be a thing. that's right. But also, not only are you a dear friend of mine <laughs> and a psychologist. <laughs> hey, Kiva. Ilya is a new mum. Yeah, on cue. <laughs> We have a child in the background today as we do this interview, so apologies for any sound effects that come through. I love her so much, she's too cute to even be mad at. This is true. We're just going to have to giggle at the noises that might come through and join us on this podcast today. And you were also there at the beginning of my MS diagnosis. Yeah, I was was actually thinking that when, when you talked about doing the podcast on your story and... I was thinking that that was probably when I first was becoming friends with you. Like yeah. I'd known you for a while at that mm-hmm. point, but we were just starting to really hang out and I was getting to know you. And you were going through this massive, <laughs> massive journey on the side, which I think at the time I didn't realize yeah. like how big it was. And now yeah. like sitting here with you years later, I'm like, holy shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. It's been a journey for you, my friend. Our friendship for you to me was really baptism by fire, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm really sick now. Yeah. Do you want please, to be my friend? Please help me off stage because I can't <laughs> yeah. see anymore. <laughs> I Yay. got you. Babe. I got you. <laughs> All right, shall we do this? Yes. So today it's Jess's story. It so is. So why don't we start then, Jess, with what is your definition of relapsing, remitting, multiple sclerosis? So my definition when people ask what is MS, mm-hmm. I describe it in the way that it's an autoimmune condition where my immune system 
is mistakenly attacking parts of the body that it shouldn't do. So in the example of MS, it's eating the myelin sheath that wraps around the central nervous system. Mm-hmm. And so the way that you can think of myelin and the central nervous system is like an electrical cord and how it has that rubber casing yeah. around around it. That's kind of like what the myelin is around your central nervous system. And so the immune system, instead of eating viruses and bacteria, it is nibbling away at that rubber casing of the wire. Mm. And so then, because the central nervous system is how all of our messages go from our brain to parts of the body, when a message goes down that wire, now it's got a little speed bump or a little pothole. And so Mm. the message just gets a little bit skew with... A little bit lost. (laughs) And it gets a bit lost, and it doesn't quite make it to the part of the body. And so relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis is when I have a relapse because those um, little potholes appear which are called lesions and you can see them on MRI Mm -hmm. images and so a relapse is possibly when you have a bit of a cluster of these new lesions and then something is going on for you so it might be you've lost vision or you your leg or there's lots of pain or something any there's so many symptoms of ms so you often get like a physical something which yeah. gives you a like this idea that something's probably not going Go, is yeah something's happening in the brain yeah. and so then with relapsing remitting you recover from those relapses okay. if you have secondary progressive ms you aren't recovering every time you have one of these speed oh, bumps and so that's when things escalate and all of your symptoms pile on top of each other and that's when you can be severely more disabled with your MS. But touch all the wood at this stage, when I have had a relapse, I have stopped the relapse. Yeah. So that's... For those of you that couldn't see that, I just leaned across and touched wood as you said that. (laughs) I appreciate it. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's a lot. Yeah. to be going on for a person. Yes. So you were diagnosed, but like you said, there's lots of symptoms of MS. So how like, how does the diagnosis process even start or what does it look like? So I was in my final year of my degree study at NASDA, the National Academy of Singing and Dramatic Art dun, dun, here dun. in Christchurch. And as you can imagine with a drama school, it was really physical and really full on. And... It all started for me because in my final year, I was at a singing lesson and I just started crying. And that's really normal because singing is so, like singing lessons are really emotional (laughs) places anyway. And my singing teacher, Ange, was like, what is going on for you? You're crying a bit more than you normally would. (laughs) And I was like, Ange, I can't see out of my right eye. Like everything is grey and blurry and I don't really know what's going on with me and I just feel like shit. And so then she was like, okay, let's finish our singing lesson and I think you should try and get an appointment with the optometrist. And so I wear glasses anyway, and mm-hmm. I rang my optician and I was like, can I get an appointment today? I just, I've, I've lost a lot of vision in my right eye and things don't feel too good. So they saw me that afternoon. It was a Friday. They wanted to see me before the weekend. And I drove myself there. Oh and I like looking back in hindsight, I'm like, why were you driving? And so I go to the optician and the optician does all the tests and he's like, 
physically we can't really see that there's something wrong it could just be an eye migraine so sleep it off over the weekend and if you're still not feeling any better or it gets worse by Monday give us another call and so Monday came around it definitely hadn't gotten any better so I rang the optician again and I was like I didn't have to go in I just talked to them on the phone and I was like it's gotten it's actually gotten worse it's a big gray cloud over my vision on my right eye and now I've got I'm like really sore in in my head like with a headache I feel really fatigued everything was just not doing too good and he was like okay I need to refer you to an ophthalmologist and so then in the public system to get an ophthalmologist that was going to be like two Thursdays time mm-hmm. and I was I have a really good relationship with my mum and dad and so mum knew everything that was going on and she rang her optician down where she lives and the optician was like how old is she mum's like oh she's 21 I just turned 21 and he's like okay let me see what I can do so then only like a few hours pass and I think that then an ophthalmologist must have rang mum and was like oh we've just had a referral randomly through this other optician something about your daughter we'll see her at 8am tomorrow and mum's like wait what it's gone from like it's not urgent see her in two weeks to we want to see her tomorrow and this was private through St George's Hospital yeah and then they were like your daughter's 21 and she can't see out of one of her eyes like it's a pretty big deal deal. we need to see her immediately so then mum drives up to Christchurch and the next day at 8am I go to see Dr James the Mm -hmm. ophthalmologist and so this was all private we were paying for this I can't remember how much it was but I do know that the test that he needed to get done was an extra like $350 and he said is that okay should can I do this test? And we were like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, You're like, I don't really have a choice sure, at this point. Yeah. I can't see. <laughs> we kind of want to know what's going on. And I remember sitting in the waiting room and I was like to my mum, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? The mm. worst thing that can happen is that I have to wear an eye patch. In my head, that was like, my <laughs> life will be over if I have to wear an eye patch. <laughs> and they have to like take out my eye and that's it. And I'm going to be a pirate for yeah. the rest of my life. <laughs> So that's where I was at and then we did the test and then he was like okay it's confirmed you've got optic neuritis and there's only two possible reasons why your eye could have optic neuritis. You could have eye flu and it's just happened Mm -hmm. or you have multiple sclerosis. Do you know what MS is? And I'm like well yeah Sarah Potts has it at the moment on Shortland (laughs) Street. He's like yeah so we really need you to go and get an MRI I will do a referral for that. Do you want to go public or private? And mm. thankfully, I've got the most supportive parents ever. And they were like, you will go private because then we can get it done like tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, and I think actually maybe the ophthalmologist suggested that we go private for that. He's like, if you can get the scan done privately, it's probably like $1,500. If you can get that done, then you'll get into the public system a lot quicker. Okay. So we were like, sure, it's a no-brainer. And then I get the MRI and I still am going to classes while all of this is happening because it was our performance prac the day Mm. of the MRI. And I knew that I'd be getting results, a call about the results in the afternoon. And at about one o'clock, I was like, well, I have to do this assessment with my friend Josh. 
we were singing Bop to the Top from High School Musical 2. I remember this performance. <laughs> <laughs> so good. And I was like sitting in the audience and everyone kind of knew that something was going on for me. And Josh knew that there was more about what was going on. I hadn't really told anybody else. Yeah. And we were in performance break and it was our turn to go on stage and perform and I remember giving my phone to another student and I was like if that rings you have to like stand up and stop the performance and I like I need I need to take this call yeah and I remember them being like sorry what like no there's no way I'm doing that it's so dramatic yeah like (laughs) it's performing it's the most important thing that you do your performance break and I was like already had perspective that NASDA doesn't mean anything right now. Yeah. Your health is so important. Yeah, for sure. Luckily, the phone didn't ring, so we managed to make it through the performance. (laughs) We bopped to the top. Yeah, we bopped (laughs) to the top. And then we got, I got the call and it wasn't even results. It was like, okay, you need to go back and see Dr. James. Mm -hmm. So then went back to the ophthalmologist and by this time my dad had come up to Christchurch as well. And we were just in the waiting room and mum and dad said, do you want us to come in with you? And I was like, no, strong, independent woman. (laughs) I can take the results on my own. And I went in, Dr. James said, okay, I've seen your MRI. I'm not a neurologist, so I don't know for sure, but there's a lot going on in there and it looks like you have MS. And I just burst into tears. And then he was like, okay. I was like, (laughs) I'm just going to get my mum and dad. (laughs) I've got this 21-year-old female in my office crying. Uh, Help. (laughs) Who literally thought the worst thing possible would be to get an eye patch. (laughs) And so then I fling open the door to the waiting room and poor everybody else that's in the waiting room for something. (laughs) Thinking like, holy shit, is that going to be me next? Like, what is this guy doing in there? And then my parents come in and we get the news and... It was really devastating and really yeah. sad. And then he was like, okay, well, we need, now need you to um, have an appointment with a neurologist. I've heard that Dr. Deborah Mason is one of the best in the world. So would you like me to try and get her for you? And we were like, sure. Sure, sounds good. And then, yeah, I can't remember how long it would have been from then until getting an appointment with Dr. Mason, but it was pretty quick, I yeah. think. So from going to... Like from having the singing lesson to getting that news, mm. how long was that? Probably, I can't really remember, but probably only a week. <gasps> wow, what a yeah, whirlwind. It all happened pretty fast. And so then oh. I go and see Dr. Mason at the Christchurch Hospital. This is now under the public care. Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, normally we can't diagnose MS until you've had a couple of relapses. And this technically is one relapse. But because I was a bit of an oversharer and I don't have any siblings and so my friends are like my family. And so I was telling my friends a lot throughout all of NASDA and I had it in writing that weird things were happening to me. Yeah. Like I, there was Facebook messages that my friend Jade recovered when I was writing to her, oh, sorry, you're going to have to call me now because I feel like I'm paralyzed. I can't use my hands. It feels really strange to type. So can you just call me? And then there was another moment where my dance teacher, Kirsty, was a bit like, something's happening to you in jazz dance class. (laughs) Like we don't know what's going on. But I would go to do a leap and I would just lose all coordination and I just couldn't use my legs to land and I would fall over a lot. 
you know, it was very funny to me and Josh at the time. Yeah. But <laughs> Kirsty was like, I think you need to go and talk to a physio about this. And I went to the physio and they were like, oh, well, maybe you need more magnesium. And so I took magnesium and then I got better. But that's because it's relapsing remitting MS. You get better yeah. after like six or so weeks. So you're sitting there being like, oh, oh this, it was mag- magnesium. this yeah. magnesium's helping me. But actually... Yeah. There was something going on yeah. in your brain neurologically yeah. that you were healing. Yeah. And then there was and another time where I was, I lo- lost my balance a lot. And so I remember like waking up one morning and I just fell over because there was just no balance in me. <laughs> and so I went to the GP and first of all, one GP thought it was all in my head. He was like, you're making this stuff up. And then another GP was like, oh, I think you've got crystals in your ears and that's why the balance thing's happening. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, of course, I got better. And then there was another time when I was watching a play and it was a two-hander. There was only two actors on stage and I saw four the whole night. So it was just double vision. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. You're like, who were the other two? two? Like, Everyone else is like, what? (laughs) Yeah. And so all of those things, and because I was at drama school, which was so physical, All of that was documented. And so then the neurologist was able to go, well, I've got all of this information. I don't really need to do anything else. We don't need to wait for another relapse. You've got all of this information that actually had been happening. Yeah, you've definitely got MS. And I feel like there was a moment where my dad said something like, you know, are are we sure? Is that a lot of lesions or something? Mm -hmm. And I feel like she uh, like alluded to us like, this is this is a lot like that is like this is MS that is definitely MS I've got no doubt yeah and so then the chat became of what what do what do you do next like you have this diagnosis and you I wanted to finish my degree but then it it escalated and so the object neuritis didn't really go away (laughs) blowing raspberries sorry child (laughs) in the background blowing raspberries hey Kiva And so the optic neuritis didn't really go away. And then I got it in my other eye as well. Mm -hmm. And it sort of alternated between the two for the whole rest of the year. And then it started affecting my legs as well. And I think that's when our friendship really grew. It's probably when the leg stuff was happening and I was using crutches to get around school. (laughs) Yeah, and that was the reference we talked about at the start. We did a performance actually at the end of the year and there was this big 42nd Street number and so, like, Jess is out there tapping away, doing her thing, big, like, hot stage lights on, and the lights go down, and my job was to run from the wings, <laughs> grab Jess, because she actually couldn't see anything at this yeah. point, and then take you back off stage. <laughs> I mean, like, what a trooper, like, continuing to perform, yeah. despite, like, I don't, I can't see out of my right eye for this whole performance. I don't know if I'm like that now. I'm definitely a lot more lazy, especially <laughs> seeing as I work for myself. I'm like, yeah, I don't feel very good today. Like, I'm not, not going to do not it. Not for me. <laughs> not for me. But then... Yeah, and like, because during all of that, and still to this day, with the optic neuritis, Mm. seeing in the dark is so hard for me. Yeah. It's just, yeah, everything gets really, yeah, I don't know how to to describe it, but the dark is really scary because I don't have a lot of vision. And while all of this is happening and I can't really see at night, I'm sober driving Josh because Josh is like, <laughs> well, you can't drink anymore. Like you got MS, like what's going on? There's going to be some benefits yeah, to this Yeah, like you're going to sober drive me to this party. I'm like, Josh, I can't see. Like I don't know if that's a liability. 
And so I did it, but we had this system where it was like, I could only drive Josh. I couldn't drive anyone else because that was too, way too risky. But if <laughs> something God. happened and it was just me and Josh, like, it's like, fine. Oh, well. <laughs> Sacrificial lamb, Josh. Shout out to you, Josh Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Who isn't listening because he doesn't listen to podcasts, so it's oh. fine. <laughs> so we can continue. <laughs> okay. Whirlwind of a diagnosis process, really. Mm-hmm. Like, when you think of the timeline, but then when you look back at all of the different relapse symptoms you actually had and you said that your family were always super supportive and I don't know if that's so common people know but you weren't living in the same like city as your family so they're like traveling up yeah lots kind of like at the drop of a hat but what was the rest of your support network like or did you keep it a secret like what was it like yeah I didn't keep it a secret because I was at drama school and they were like, there's no secrets. There, in are, drama <laughs> there are no secrets. And I think it wasn't that anyone specifically told me you have to tell your classmates, but it was sort of alluded to like, I think it would be best if you told everybody what's going on because there are rumors starting and no one really knows what's happening. So maybe you should let them know and so the head of NASDA who became a bit of like an uncle figure he called all of the class together and we had a class meeting and I think Kirsty was there because Kirsty knew as well everything that was going on she was the head of dance and then we had this class meeting and I just told everybody I've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and I don't really know what this means for the future but We'll see what happens. And everyone was really, um, everyone was really supportive. But I think when you're 21, like you've got no idea what that actually means. And so it was, it was good. But the support network definitely came from you, a hundred percent. I remember so vividly how helpful you were, and just like being there for me when. Most people from the outside looking in would have thought that was really bizarre that I was like, I just want to go to dance class. Like at, I was doing evening dance classes. And I was like, I just want to go. I just want to be around people and I just want to feel like my life has still got some sort of normalcy. And you were like, Yes, come. come on in. Just sit with me because you're, I'm the teacher. So yeah. I sit in the front and yeah. I, like, you can sit with me. And I remember just coming in and sitting with you at the front and that was just so good to be around people that you just didn't care that anything was going on they just liked me as me and it was fine and I suppose it's like a bit of a balance of helping you through what was a really difficult time and providing you with this is what Jess does every Tuesday Wednesday night and just give you like you said that yeah normal routine and structure when the rest of your world might have felt pretty scary at that point yeah And then my housemate at the time, he was really amazing. And I remember after being at a dance class, I had come home and I was just like, am I ever going to dance again? Am I ever going to do my job again? Like, this is really scary. And so mentally it was such a mind fuck as well being (laughs) diagnosed. And so then... I remember coming home from dance class. I opened the, I yeah, I opened the door and then I just sort of collapsed in the doorway and I was just sobbing my heart out. And then yeah, my housemate Sam was there, and so I just remember his support was like no other. He really stepped up. Yeah, yeah. So you had 
what sounds like because I'm in that I can be like a pretty awesome support mm-hmm. network so did the hospital or the specialist did they try to connect you with any <laughs> societies or any like support groups that they run yeah no one actually said here's a society here's a here's a here's a support group mm-hmm. go it was that I was in a really out of control mental spiral and I said to my mum I just need a pamphlet I need a pamphlet about this thing so I can see it written down and I can go here's what I've got read about it I just needed a pamphlet it was it's quite comical now but I'm literally like you know (laughs) out of my head like I need a pamphlet I need a pamphlet where can I find a pamphlet and so we discover the MS Society in Christchurch and and they had pamphlets they had pamphlets (laughs) which was amazing I still have those pamphlets and so through the MS Society, they were able to connect me with some field workers, but I didn't resonate with any of them. Yeah. One of them took me out for coffee, and I don't blame anyone for not resonating with me because I know that I am a textbook extrovert. I refuel around other people. I wanted a career that people don't understand. Yeah. Still, They still don't understand. <laughs> And I know I don't fit the box of a person who's just been diagnosed. So I don't blame them for not understanding, but definitely didn't wasn't helpful when a field worker took me out for coffee and then was like, well, you better make the most of tap dancing because you won't be doing that again. And I was yeah. like, wait, what? <laughs> the juxtaposition of my neurologist who was so amazing being like you can do anything you want after this diagnosis it really is not going to change. Yeah. You're going to be okay. You're going to be able to travel the world. You can be a performer. It's going to be fine. And then yeah, this field worker be like it's like actually that's all bullshit. Yeah. Like say goodbye to everything you know. Yeah. I just cried and cried and cried after. I cried so much during this whole time. Mm. It was so hard mentally. And I think because I was 21 and I just lived a life not being aware of these sort of things, that I didn't have any tools to process it. And I remember there would be times where I would just be sitting in my car after like pretending that everything was fine at NASDA or going to a show and then just sitting in my car and I never wanted like mentally it got pretty bad and it got pretty dark and I but I never wanted to die I just wanted everything to stop and that I could just have a breather but the world wouldn't continue because I really felt like I was being left behind yeah having to process all of this and it just felt like everything was continuing to to move and to get older and to grow and but and I just was running to try and keep up but I couldn't because I was trying to process all of this diagnosis but yeah so I remember Mm. it wasn't like suicidal thoughts or anything but it was like I just need a break a lot just want everything to just pause and I can just be on my own little world and the world not move on you were studying we know Mm -hmm. at the at NASDA at drama school so one of the questions that came through on Instagram was did your diagnosis affect your career path and the choices you made around that. So can you talk us through what happened next after your diagnosis? Yeah, so I it did affect what happened after NASDA, I guess. So yeah. I changed the way that I was thinking about 
my career because I had changed so significantly. I'd grown up so much after the diagnosis and I decided to move to Wellington to do my yoga teacher training. And then I think it just escalated from there where I suddenly realized what was actually important and health is really important and being happy is really important and doing what you love is really important. And so I sort of went down the more creating for yourself and working for yourself way and that traveling was really important to me. And so, yeah, it did change my career, but it didn't change it in a way that I felt sad about it. Yeah, so like you said, instead of, I know we were talking about this before, instead of waiting for a director to say, yep, you've got the job, you're like, I'm going to use my own creative mind and create the work and and follow my dreams that way. Yeah, totally. And I was very aware of the fact that I might not be doing this forever because when I was diagnosed, the neurologist said, if you don't start treatment soon, I think within the next seven years, you will be in a wheelchair. My MS was so aggressive. And so I was really conscious of the fact that this might not last forever. So I don't want to do a shitty job. I want to do, be the best person that I can be. So it did change in a way, but I wasn't too sad about it. And I'm really happy with where my career has gone now. And so I don't miss moving out of that musical theater kind of world at all. But I also knew that there was a bunch of actors they do have chronic illnesses or there are people that work in the disabled artist realm as well. And like, it's definitely not going to be the end of the world. Yeah. It kind of give you hope. Yeah. Like there's, there's possibility here. It's not yeah. what I've trained for and what I've wanted to do my whole life is mm-hmm. not completely out the window. Exactly. So when did you actually start treatment then? Yeah. So I started when I moved to Wellington. So ah. 2014 was my final year of NASDA and that's when I got diagnosed right at the end of the year. And then 2015 is when I moved and that's when I started treatment. In New Zealand, Pharmac is our drug buying company mm-hmm. and they had just funded two new MS medications for people with relapse and remitting MS. And so... I was given a choice. I was given all of the options, but then again, I wasn't given a choice. Dr. Mason was like, I think you have to go on Tysabri slash natalizumab because it's the best one that we have and your MS is so aggressive. I don't think you would respond to the other forms of treatment. Yeah. So when I moved to Wellington, I moved to the care of Capital and Coast DHB. So I was under Canterbury DHB to begin with. Then I moved to Wellington, was under their DHB. And I started treatment. So Tysabri was an infusion via IV every four weeks. And I was traveling a little bit in that. And I would just come back in four weeks time to get treatment again. And then eventually it got to the point where... I think I'd been there for two years and I decided to move to Auckland mm-hmm. and everything was going fine on this drug. It it took a while for my body to process it because it is quite a huge drug that you're getting and I think my body just was in shock. And so I did have another relapse right at the beginning of that starting treatment. And every time I got the infusion, it would knock me back for about a week. And so... Eventually I started to tolerate it a lot better and I moved to Auckland 
And that's when I transferred to Auckland Hospital and that was like my favourite hospital. I love everybody there. It was so nice. There's lots of windows. It's just the best. And I love my infusion nurses so much. Um, (laughs) And that's when I became, I guess, less of a number and a little bit more... I saw the same nurses every time, although I did that in Wellington, but I just felt like my care in Auckland really got better. And that's when we made the decision to actually move my infusions to every six weeks instead of every four weeks. And I responded really well to that. And every so often when I was traveling, I was able to stretch it to every eight weeks between infusions. I only did that about once a year. But that was life-changing because that meant that I was able to actually take gigs overseas and be gone for two months. And then eventually that just kept happening. So I packed up everything in Auckland and I put it all in a storage unit and I was just full-time traveling. And I would come back to Auckland for treatment, stay a week. I love it, my week pit stop in Auckland every eight weeks. Yeah, every six to eight weeks. And it was awesome and everything was going great. And then... I was working in Australia. Oh, so I guess the reason why I wasn't getting infusions done overseas is that no matter where in the world I was, it was always going to be cheaper to fly back to Auckland and get it done than it was to pay to get the drug overseas and then pay a neurologist and pay an infusion nurse. And like, it was so expensive. So then I was working in Australia and my MS just got so bad and I was in so much pain and I'm in so much pain that I'm nauseous. Like I feel like I want to throw up because the pain just gets so bad and I didn't really tell anybody about it. And, and then I was, I'd had my infusion. I'd gone back to Melbourne and my, I had met my partner Jonas by then. And so he was in Australia with me and it got to the point where I just like couldn't do my show because I was in so much pain. And so when I came back for a neurology appointment, I mentioned to him that I was in loads of pain. And I think the pain is the worst symptom for me in mentally because yeah. nobody can validate that you're in pain. No one else knows what's going on for you. So, And then you're just constantly second guessing yourself. Yeah. And you're like, am I actually in pain? Is this actually sore? Is this actually as bad as what it feels like? Yeah. And no one else can tell you. And so I think that's really hard. And and then it got to the point where I did mention it to the neurologist and the doctors at the hospital. And they were like, yes, there is no doubt in my mind you are in in pain pain. and it's your MS causing it and we can help you. And that's when they prescribed me amitriptyline, which in the community, people love it, people hate it. I love it. It is keeping me doing what I'm doing. And I just wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for starting amitriptyline. And I'm really lucky that I take 10 milligrams every night and it doesn't put me to sleep anymore. I'm really, I tolerate it so well now that it doesn't put me to sleep. But 10 milligrams is enough for me to not be in excruciating pain all the time. And... I think amitriptyline is really hard for people because it is actually an antidepressant. Yeah. In low dosages, it can be used to help neurological pain. And so sometimes I'll take two, it'll take 20 milligrams. But I think it can be really scary because I know that I have an addictive personality. 
and yeah. I've read a lot of forums and I know that amitriptyline can be really scary because people can get really addicted and really like dependent on dependent it. and it, it makes you sleep and you just sleep and it feels so good to sleep and I was watching this YouTube video of this lady who was like I was taking like 90 milligrams wow. and just became really addicted to it and I can totally see that that could happen if you weren't strong enough to not be like that yeah and so yeah it's like on maybe when I'm getting my infusion I would take 20 milligrams that night because everything's really painful and and it it puts me to sleep if I take two and so then I can see how people could really want to do that more so I think amitriptyline is really scary so I understand why a lot of people don't want to be on that but for you you've worked out a system of how to make it work well for you yeah so you have the infusions you're on the amitriptyline are you on any other medication to manage yeah no just those at the moment I'm trialing some CBD products Mm -hmm. I don't think the CBD oil is working for my pain but it is working for like mentally like mental symptoms yeah so yeah but no just my infusion and I've actually changed my drug for MS now. I'm not mm-hmm. on Tysabri nationalismab anymore because uh-huh. something happened. <laughs> so here it comes. Yeah. So going back, we're September 2019. Yeah. Jess has been busy traveling the world. Mm-hmm. You've worked out this routine of how to get your infusions coming yeah. back to Auckland, but otherwise living your best life as yeah. Jess the Mess, the busking yeah. show. <laughs> And then September 2019 rolls around. Yeah. So tell us what happened. So with my MS, I was getting MRIs every 12 months. That is to do with Pharmac because that you need to kind of like prove that you still have MS, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> if you change two points on the disability scale, you will be cut off from your treatment. So they do a review. Mine's every May just to check that you haven't like been cured and that you haven't really deteriorated. Mm-hmm. And so also in amongst that, they do an MRI just to check what's going on. Yeah. But with Ty Sabri and natalizumab that I was on, every six months I was also getting a blood test that was being sent to Denmark and they test for the JC virus. And so anyone could have this virus and they wouldn't know until they were like, 90 years old and their immune system was giving way or whatever they needed to test that I didn't have that because the treatment was essentially putting a barrier around the brain so that there was no immune system in the brain Mm -hmm. if you have the JC virus and it gets into the brain it can cause a disease called PML yeah which I don't know the full name for it's really long (laughs) and you don't want PML it's kind of all that was sort of told about being on this treatment so they were just testing for the JC virus and I had always been negative and back when I first started treatment like five years ago they could even show you how negative you were and I was like way down the line this is not kind of a problem yeah for me this is just a routine thing that we have to tick off and so then I got an MRI in September So yeah, my reviews are in May. They file for the MRI, but I don't get it until September because that's how long the wait is in public at the moment for MRIs in Auckland. So I get my MRI in September and I haven't heard anything and I'm just in my, at my parents' place and I need to go and see my GP because I need to get like, 
I don't know, something random, like antihistamines or something, you know, just, yeah. and I was like, oh, well, it's just easier. This is before COVID, before we did phone yeah, appointments. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I go up to Auckland and I see my GP. And while I'm there, it's it's really busy in my GP's practice that day. We're not even in her room because someone's using it for something else. We're like awkwardly in some sort of waiting room. Like it's really not a not a very good space anyway and I ask her oh by the way I just had an MRI do you have my results and she's like yeah yeah yeah, I do and she just starts reading them out to me and she's got no idea what these results mean and she says we've found a lesion that looks like PML and I'm like wait what is going on and she goes oh is that bad and then oh I'm like, God. yeah, that's really bad. You don't want PML. Do I have PML? Is that what it says? And then she goes, oh, no, no, no. And she's trying to backtrack what she's saying. And like I, you can't unsay that I've know. got PML. And I've talked to my new GP about this now. And I was like, I don't blame her because I'm really intimidating when it comes to that shit. Like, I'm like, give me my results. And she... she I know my rights. Yeah, tell me, what, you know, tell me so my information. <laughs> it is what it is. And she even printed them out for me. So I had a copy, which also should not have done should not have told me them should not have printed them out for me should not have just even yeah if you couldn't explain it don't yeah. tell the patient Leave it what for it the is. specialist yeah and so then I ring the MS nurses and I'm like they think I've got PML I need a neurologist to describe and explain the, these results to me ASAP still not getting through and then finally the MS nurse rings me back and I'm supposed to be like flying out that evening back down to mum and dad's and the MS nurse rings me back and she's like, uh, hi Jess, what's happening? And I'm like, no small talk. Where's the neurologist? Put me on the phone to my neurologist. I need to know what these results mean. And then she's like, oh, sorry, I just got to put you on hold and I'll see what I can do. And like, they just kept putting me on hold and nothing was happening. And it got to the point where I was like, I know that there's a neurologist on call right now. You have to put me online to them. Yeah. No, well, we can't actually do that, Jess. Well, I'm going to go to a GP. I'm going to go to the closest GP clinic right now because I know that a doctor can ring the neurologist on call. Like, I yeah. need to be explained. Give me to my them. information. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually they said, All right, your neurologist is at the university at the moment. We've just gotten through to him. He'll see you tomorrow on his lunch break. And I was like, okay. Still no one was able to tell me what was going on. So then I see him in my lunch break, in his lunch break the next day. And he's like, yeah, so basically what happened was we got your results. And then he had to fly to Sweden for the weekend to go to a conference for neurology. <laughs> Imagine that. Love the time. I know. And he had sent a message around the hospital saying, if Jess Bryan calls, like no one is to give her any information until I get back. And mm. so he had just gotten back and had to go teach this class. And that's when I found out they weren't really counting on my GP giving me these results. Yeah. And he says, yeah, we don't know what it is, but it looks like PML. So we need to do some more tests and we'll do another blood test for JCV, get that sent to Denmark and we'll do a lumbar puncture because the JC virus could also be in your spinal fluid, not in your blood. So they make a lumbar puncture for the next day. I'm like, whoa, this is huge because all I've been told my whole life is that you don't want PML. Mm. And 
Actually, I think the lumbar puncture was for the following week because I remember that afternoon I flew down to see mum and dad yeah. and I just collapsed at the airport pretty much on in Auckland and I rang the, one of the MS nurses, Fiona, who really, like, she became my nurse and I just rang her and I was like, Fiona, am I going to die? And yeah. she was like, no, I don't think you are. And even if you do have PML, we're going to fight this and yeah. it's all going to be okay. But where are you right now? And I'm yeah. like, I'm at the airport and I don't know what's happening to me. So, yeah. And then our whole world just turns upside down. So so you're meant to be heading to Europe. Yeah. And where's Jonas at this point? Yeah. So Jonas, my partner, is in Europe. And then I kind of had to figure out a way to tell him that they don't really know what's going on, but it could be PML. And... I tell him and I know that he doesn't really understand what it is, but luckily his dad was in Prague with him for the weekend and he had dinner with his dad and his dad was like, I think this is really serious. I think you need to go to New Zealand. And we were supposed to be both performing in Australia um, that next month and then we were going to Europe from there. And so Mm -hmm. he did already have a flight to this side of the world. So. He was able to keep that flight, flew to Australia and then flew to New Zealand and we both had to cancel that festival that we were doing. And I didn't really tell anybody that this was happening. There was only like a few of my friends that knew and I have a couple of friends, Lisa and Ruben in Melbourne and they became the people that I just told everything to after every appointment. They knew everything that was going on. And so they were really lovely and, and they even offered to go and perform at the festival in Australia for me and Jonas if the festival was like well this is not okay that you're, about yeah, it. they were like well we'll go and do it for you so just so much support and so lovely and then I just did MRIs every four weeks I got a lumbar puncture every four weeks for three months three oh. lumbar punctures Ouch. and blood tests just continuous blood tests and they were just trying to get to the bottom of whether this was PML but every spinal fluid test from Auckland lab and from the Sydney lab kept coming back as negative all the bloods kept coming back as negative then it was like well is Jess the only person in the world that doesn't have the JC virus and has managed to get PML it was like everyone was convinced that it was PML but then trying to convince me that it wasn't PML and they just kept throwing PML around and I remember being on the phone to one of the nurses once and just being like can you just take a moment right now to type into Google what is PML and just have a look at what comes up and then she rings me back and she's like, I am so sorry, Jess, because doesn't now, but the first, like back then, the first thing that came up was PML, 40% mortality rate. <laughs> it was right. like, I don't need to be reminded, you know, that this could yeah. be what it is. Yeah. And so, yeah, they just had no idea what it was and... I was suddenly, Jonas then came over and I just couldn't be left alone. It was like my mum or my dad or Jonas, everyone, someone has to be with Jess at all times because it was just so full on and suddenly you're hit with this moment where you realise your mortality and you're like, oh my God, I could actually die. Like this might actually be the the thing and I don't know what's going on and, and do I... Am I proud of the life that I've lived? Yeah, and like huge yeah, perspective shift. Yeah. Yeah. And for my family as well, I think. And yeah. I just realized that I don't want to die. 
There's yeah. no part of me that wants to die. I've got so much that I want to do and I need to do it. And yeah, it really helped the perspective shift again yeah. of like, yeah, we get so What's caught important. up on all of this bullshit and it actually doesn't matter. Yeah. That goes on for months. This just like blows my mind yeah. that they didn't know what this lesion yeah. is. And like they're doing all these tests, like really invasive yeah. tests. Like, these are not just these little cheap blood tests that you get at a GP. Like, really invasive testing. And then with the MRIs, because there was an MRI shortage, I had been outsourced to the private clinic. Still public, but I was outsourced to private. And because of this monitoring, I needed to be in the same machine every time. And I'm getting an MRI every four weeks. (laughs) And I have to be in the private one at Trinity MRI in Newmarket in Auckland. And the ADHB doesn't have enough money to outsource me every time. Like they might get $10,000 every month to outsource for MRIs. And the MRIs that I was needing with contrast every time was like, if I I asked them, I was like, if I'm paying for this, how much is this going to be? And they were like, it's like $2,500 or something. Like it was a lot of money. And so because of that, I don't know, I won't go into it fully now because I don't want to talk everyone's ears off for ages, but maybe I'll talk more about it in another episode sometime. But essentially what happened was I knew too much. Yeah. The nurses and the doctors told me too much. And I didn't actually need to know the admin around this. And I didn't need to know that the hospital accounts were not working. I just needed to have faith that I would get an MRI and they'd figure out what it was. The system would hold you. Yeah. But I knew that the system was failing. And so... That added way more stress and pressure. And then it got to the point where some of the people in the hospital were like blaming me for the lifestyle that I live for it being so complicated. And I was like, no, the fact that I work for myself means that this isn't complicated. I can just drop anything and have an MRI whenever you want. Because it got to the point where they wouldn't tell me when the MRI, like no one could book book, book me in for an MRI because the funding wasn't there. And so... It was just really, it was a lot. So it was a time that went on and then it was like, well, should I go to Australia? Should I go and get tests done in Australia? Because maybe a neurologist over there knows what's going on. But then it was Christmas and so everything shuts and yet you're still sick at Christmas, but no one's working. So that was weird. And then eventually they were like, okay, well, we're pretty sure that it's not PML because there's no side effects. Like Clinically, I wasn't presenting with any symptoms. And so they were like, if it was PML, you would have deteriorated by now. So we're pretty sure we can rule that out. No more lumbar punctures, MRIs every six weeks. And during this time, I'd been taken off my treatment, Tysabri. Mm-hmm. And within three weeks of there being no treatment in my system... I had gotten four new lesions and my legs and the pain was like excruciating. So that's when they realized that my MS was really aggressive. So it wasn't worth not being on treatment. So they quickly put me back on my Tysabri treatment and they were like, well, we'll just have to risk this lesion. And then I said, well, can I go to Australia (laughs) to do Adelaide Fringe? I need to be with my friends. And they cleared me to leave the country. So I left and that's when COVID started, when I was in Adelaide. And Love so then, it. Just getting my life yeah. somewhat back to 
what feels good for me. Yeah. And then COVID comes yeah. along. And so I'm still needing MRIs every six weeks and I'm still needing infusions every six weeks. But because of COVID, I came back to my parents' place and so I couldn't go up to Auckland Hospital. So then Christchurch District Health Board took me on. And That's I was where getting, it all started. Yeah, <laughs> I was getting MRIs down here and treatment. And then eventually I went back up to Auckland after all of the lockdowns stopped and I had a appointment in December. So already we're like a year and four months on and I it's still they still have no idea, still just being monitored. And I have an appointment and my neurologist tells me that he is retiring, which is fine. He's been trying to retire for years, but then essentially was like, so that's it don't know what it was, we took your case to neurologists in New Zealand and Australia, no one else knows what it is, we've got no idea, it's starting to shrink, cool, and just sort of wiped his hands of it, (laughs) yeah, and I felt really, um, like, I felt really abandoned, and I didn't know what was going on, and because I'd been this VIP patient for over a year now, to suddenly not be a VIP patient anymore feels really strange as well. Like, mm. there was no weaning off period. Yeah. It was just like, we're not outsourcing you anymore. You're not getting any more MRIs. And you're allowed to change treatments now. We're going to put you on a new treatment. And I was just like, oh, my God. So I actually took the summer off the hospital and off thinking about this. This is the summer just gone. Yeah. And I was like, I just need to stop caring about this. So just... I'll just won't won't care about this lesion. I won't care and I'll start my new treatment in March. Yeah. So then it's comes around to March and still no one really knows what it is. No one has any idea. I haven't had another MRI and like they don't know. And I start this new treatment and everything is like kind of going okay. And I start on Ocrevis slash Ocrelizumab. And then I get another MRI because I'm still kind of getting them a little bit more frequently than most people. And they see that there's, a, there's new MS lesions. Mm-hmm. So then they're like, well, is the new drug working? Is it not? And I'm just like, oh, my God, I've got no idea what's going on. And so that's kind of where I'm at now of, like, I'm on my second dose. So Ocrevus is every six months. Mm-hmm. They still don't know what the random lesion is, but they've ruled out PML. It might just be a new form of MS that they haven't seen before that I've just bred, go me, <laughs> go you, <laughs> unique juice. <laughs> and then I'm on Ocrevus now and that seems to be going fine. Yeah. I am a little bit more MSC than usual, Yeah, but nothing that I can't handle. And yeah, I'm just this kind of like medical mystery. And so got, you're a living medical mystery. Yeah. I feel privileged to be sitting opposite you. <laughs> I blitzed through that so fast. There's more information over on Instagram. But yeah. yeah. So that's like a whirlwind of what, a, a year and a half? Yeah. That you've gone through and still no answers. No. And I've actually transferred everything down to Christchurch. Now that my neurologist is retired, I just, I just have a feeling, yeah, it's like hard. It's hard to be a VIP and then not be a VIP anymore. And so... Yeah. Everything was changing. One of my infusion nurses, she's not there anymore, and I know she listens to the podcast, so hi, Jane. Um, <laughs> we love <and> you, Jane. <laughs> everything just kind of changed, and so I thought, I think this is a good time to change. Yeah. I'm going to move down to Christchurch, 
changed my care and already I'm feeling really good. I've got my old neurologist, Dr. Mason, back, which she has a huge wait list. So that is amazing that they have said yes to me. So thank you so much. And my GP here is amazing. So I feel really lucky and I feel like we're going to move forward and see what's happening. Yeah. And it's I get- a fresh start. It is a fresh start. And I get to share it with all of the That's So Chronic listeners. Yeah. So let me just like interrupt here. So halfway through this brain lesion, what is Jess's life? The That's So Chronic thought popped into your head. It did. Like how? I I just felt so alone that I had no idea what was going on. And so I thought, surely I can't be the only person who feels so alone yeah and I thought we need to talk about our stories more and we need to connect with people all around the world and especially in New Zealand like there's a lot going on here yeah that's where the idea came along yeah there isn't I mean like I haven't come across other forums where Mm. you've got all of these people with different chronic difficulties or illnesses or disabilities and you've created this forum now where people yeah. can share their stories and like you say feel connected yeah in some way because even if you don't resonate with the condition that someone's talking about mm. a lot of it is the same lived experience yeah. like feeling really neglected in the health system or feeling alone feeling in pain or feeling like no one's listening and yeah. so I think we can relate to everybody's stories and I think other people are learning so much as well about people that live with chronic conditions and disabilities and injuries like long lasting injuries they are realizing that life is not quite what everyone's like putting on yeah. the outside yeah I mean like coming putting my psychology hat on mm. here that is one thing I have loved about the podcast is one learning about a lot more different conditions and like you said the completely different lived experience that I thought I had an awareness of, yeah. but actually I really didn't. Yeah. I really didn't. And I do really like, this is a bit off topic here, but I really like how you have used this platform to not just show people that are surviving, but people that are thriving. Yeah. And actually sometimes it's a bit of both. Yeah. And that that's okay too. <laughs> yes, definitely. So yeah, that's me and my MS and my random brain lesion story. <laughs> yeah, Kiva. Yeah, I Kiva. agree. We agree. <laughs> and then the random MSC things that happen, I've just learnt are just me. And yep. it's fine. And there's no point getting angry about it because there's literally nothing you can do when it's happening. Yeah. And so, yeah, you just got to live every day as if, not even as if you're going to die tomorrow, but as if you might not be able to walk tomorrow. Or we'll see. If, exactly. <laughs> like you have to just really be grateful for everything that you can do mm-hmm. because you might not be able to do some of those things. And yeah. for me, it's like a higher possibility that I might not be able to do some of those things tomorrow. Okay. So yeah, you just have to make the most of every day. I love that. And <laughs> I mean, on behalf of all the That's So Thank Chronic you. fan base, like thank you for being open and willing to share your story and being so vulnerable with that but also fuck yeah like go you living your life with MS like you do you boo yeah <laughs> I'm all for it thank you so much for helping facilitate this conversation today it's gonna be very weird listening to my voice on the other side of this because I listen to your voice every week <laughs> 
I've said it once and I'll say it again. I am so honoured that the guests trust me to help share their stories on That's So Chronic and that you, listening in from wherever you are, chose to support this podcast. It truly means the world to me. Don't forget to check out the show notes if you want to know more or feel free to connect over on Instagram. I'm at That's So Chronic. If you're new around here, why not press that follow button on Spotify or the purple subscribe button on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. That really helps That So Chronic get into more ears around the world to hopefully spread awareness and more importantly, hope.